today I'll be reading from Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Moose is now going to share with us from God's Word. Well, last week uh, we looked at Um, what the Bible was claiming for Jesus, that he had power to fix a broken and damaged world, and in particular that he was able to fix our broken and damaged lives by offering us forgiveness. That's looked at last week. Uh, This week we're going to continue to explore this theme, particularly as we look at the hopeless situation of death and the wonderful claim of the Bible that Jesus has the power over death and promises to save us from it. I don't know if uh, you have given uh, any serious thought to your death lately, Um, particularly at your age. We don't tend to talk about it all that much, do we? Um, I'm not sure if it'd be a very popular topic of conversation with your friends, maybe over your next lunch or your next dinner date. But why not give it a go? Why not next time you meet with your friends at lunch or dinner or whatever it is, you know, turn to the people next to you and say, have you given any serious thought to your death lately? And um, see how that goes down as a topic starter um, at the the dinner table. The Bible wants us to think about death. Here's a memory verse for you if you are into memory verses. If you're not, you should be. Uh, Here's a memory verse for you. Very appropriate for for people your age. So listen to this one. Ecclesiastes 7, 1 and 2. A good name is better than perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man and the living should take this to heart. Uh, Just two verses later, 
So Ecclesiastes 7 verse 4, I think this is particularly appropriate for uni students. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fool is in the house of pleasure. So make that of what of you will, particularly the next time you decide to go to a party rather than a funeral. As clever uni students, I'm not sure I have to tell you that death is a 100% statistic, is it? Rich, poor, great or small, none of us can escape it. Death is our future, as the Bible just said, it's the destiny of every single one of us. But the Bible's not telling us, um, look, um, death is a good thing, and that's why I want you to think about it. It's quite the opposite, really. The Bible wants us to recognise that death is actually a frustrating and ugly part of our world, our broken world. It's ugly for obvious reasons, as we'll come to in our story today, but it's frustrating hopes and dreams that we might have, particularly when you're young. You've got the world ahead of you. You've come to university. You're studying hard for a future. You've got lots of hopes and dreams and aspirations that you're going to, and too often, too soon, for many of us, death comes knocking at the door. And it doesn't give any waiting to how old you are or how big your dreams are or how wonderfully gifted you might be. None at all. It ends so many of the good things that we pursue in life. And so the tragedy of life, according to the Bible, is that all too soon, death comes knocking for every single one of us. And the Bible says that's why we ought to live our life in light of that fact. Not in a YOLO kind of way. I know that some people, that's what they think about. YOLO seems to be a shorthand way of saying let's do something stupid. Um, no, the Bible says do it in a way that you consider God. Do it in a way that considers your destiny before God. Well, today I want to look at two stories in the life of Jesus that are really one story, as we're going to see, where Jesus confronts the, really the dread, the hopelessness, the helplessness that we face in, the, light, in the, the presence of death. Now, in this part of Luke's biography of Jesus, which we're picking up in, in chapter 8, um, Luke actually has shown us some incredible things about Jesus. And in particular, he wants us to see that Jesus has power over the natural world and the supernatural world of uh, evil spirits, both of which can threaten us with death. Jesus is in a boat with his disciples going across the lake and a big massive storm rises up. The disciples are frightened to death. They're seasoned fishermen, used to these kinds of things, but at this point they're frightened to death. And Jesus gets up, rebukes the wind and the waves, and suddenly both are completely calm. He lands on the other side of the lake and he's confronted by an army of evil spirits. The demons are wreaking havoc in that part of uh, town and destroying one man's life in particular. We're told that he's living in the tombs in the cemetery because they couldn't contain him in the township. And so this man is away from the living, broken relationships with everyone. Uh, he's living among the dead. You know, we kind of like 
watching zombie kind of stories on TVs these days. So this is a real-life zombie story that occurred 2,000 years ago, really. Because he really is the living dead. It's like he's already dead. That's why he's living among the tombs. But this army of evil spirits, and they, they describe themselves as legion, which kind of means army. It's a, kind of a term for a Roman uh, uh, army. They come face to face with Jesus, one, and they don't even try to put up a fight. They immediately surrender to Jesus. And he frees the man who is able to return home to live among the living. Jesus has amazing power over the natural world, the supernatural world, and he's taking on death in its many manifestations that occurs in life. And in fact, Jesus is so powerful, we're told in these stories, that it's frightening. People regularly said to be afraid of him, particularly after they see this awesome power at work in him. So the disciples, after witnessing Jesus calm the raging water and the storm, say to one another, they're scared to death, in fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? Luke 8.25. Who is this? Who He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. The townsfolk, after witnessing Jesus subdue this legion of demons that possess man, uh, they come out and say to him and ask him to leave the neighbourhood, in verse 37, because they were overcome with fear. And the Bible would tell us that it's actually a right thing to fear Jesus. It is. But most people don't. And I'm going to suggest even lots of Christians don't. We don't, I think, because we have a distorted picture of who Jesus really is. One of the most uh, common images I had of Jesus growing up, I received a Bible as a child from my Sunday school teacher. And on the, the cover was a picture of Jesus sitting on the grass and children were playing around him. And actually a picture of that on the wall. Anyone else kind of seen a picture of that? Yep. Um, quite a common image of uh, Jesus growing up. I, I read through that Bible. I didn't encounter one story of Jesus cuddling lambs um, or necessarily where ch- children were playing around him. But anyway, it's a very popular picture for children's Bibles in particular. It's a nice picture, and I want to suggest there's nothing wrong with it, except if it's our only picture of Jesus, especially if we're trying to work out if he's powerful or not. You see, if we do tend to think of Jesus as powerful, because some of us have grown out of that picture of Jesus, if we do tend to think of Jesus as powerful, then what we tend to do is kind of think of him more like a firecracker that we can hold in our hands and control, and as he really is. Because the Bible gives us a different picture altogether of the power that Jesus has. If the Bible were to kind of measure the distance between us, uh, our power and Jesus' power, well, it would be infinite. I think most of us would make him just a little bit taller and a little bit stronger than me. But it's not like trying to take on Mike Tyson. I hope you know who that is. Um, Or John Cena. I had a picture of John Cena the other day on my T-shirt on Tuesday. You don't get it. Uh, I've got a bare chest, that's it, Um, sorry. Um, But you know who John Cena is. It's not like trying to take, or Triple H is the the guy who won the latest W, anyway, don't. Um, (laughs) Not like trying to take on those figures in a back alley. I mean, you'd be stupid to do that, wouldn't it? 
and you wouldn't do it. But it's much more like trying to take on a nuclear bomb than anyone in particular. Actually, the Bible would say better to take on the nuclear bomb. Uh, when at the last day, people will actually call to the mountains to fall on them rather than face up to Jesus. But we should know that the Bible says there is a right way to fear Jesus and a wrong way to fear Jesus. The wrong way to fear Jesus is to run away from him, to call on the mountains to hide you, to avoid him. The right way to fear Jesus, according to the Bible, is to go to him, to humble ourselves before him and trust him. Now, why would you go to someone who's so powerful? Well, because what makes Jesus really awesome, and in the way that we would use that word, awesome, uh, is not just that he is powerful, but his good character. That is, think about it, Hitler had power, didn't he? Stalin had power, King Jong-un has power. Frightening. Power in the hands of evil is, is absolutely terrifying. But power in the hands of good is wonderful, and that's where we want it. It's the power and the goodness of Jesus together that attracts us to us, that uh, enables us to trust him and to joyfully and willingly follow him to our story. As we pick up the story in Luke chapter 8, Jesus is returning from that trip that he just took across to the sea where the legion were, and he's come back to Galilee, and he finds himself a very popular figure once again. After all, he had been doing lots of miracles and whatnot. And so great crowds and lots of people are not just cheerfully uh, waiting for him to welcome him, but actually gather around him and want to hang with him. And a man, we're told, called Jairus, comes along and he begs Jesus at this particular point to come with him to his home in order to heal his sick daughter. And Luke wants us to be sympathetic towards Jairus. So he tells us a couple of things like, this is his only daughter. And she's only 12 years old. And it really does pull at your heartstrings if you could imagine it. There is something about young children who are sick and who are dying that really does pull at our heartstrings. That makes us have great sympathy. It's almost like something grips our innards. I felt it. There was a particular girl at our church who, who got leukemia. She was only about 10 years old at the time. Um, talking to her, you wouldn't know, though. She was always a bundle of joy, really except for the times where she had to go through treat treatment. But talking to the parents, oh my goodness, that was heart-wrenching. And when I had to go visit a, a few times in the hospital, what was even more heart-wrenching was seeing all the children, most of whom had lost their hair, and as I discovered, it was the terminal ward, these children who were dying, and their parents in particular. And I was just crushed because I had a daughter as well at that age, and I just, it was hard to bear. It was awful. Jairus' daughter is only 12 years old, and she is dying. And so it's really easy enough for us to appreciate the agony and the desperation that he is going through at this point. And that's what causes him to fall at the feet of Jesus. 
Because let's think about how humiliating that would have been for someone like Jairus because we're told that he was a synagogue ruler. And already by this stage, we know that the religious authorities in Israel did not like Jesus. And we're told in John's Gospel that they'd already decided that followers of Jesus, those who were sympathetic towards Jesus, weren't allowed in the synagogue. And this guy is a synagogue ruler and well-regarded, well-respected, not just by the people, but probably by the religious authorities as well. But here he is, and he comes to Jesus. And he has to humble himself. He falls at the feet of Jesus and begs him to come with him because he is absolutely desperate. If it wasn't for that desperate need, dare I say, he probably would not have come to Jesus. Please, Jesus, come and heal my daughter. And Jesus goes with him. And the crowd goes with him. And on the way, we meet a sick woman who comes from the other end of the spectrum of the Jewish community. Jairus, well-respected, well-regarded, highly regarded by everyone. Um, and we know he's very religious, probably a very decent man. But here we come to a woman who we're told has a blood flow problem for 12 years, so she's hemorrhaging blood. Um, and according to the law in Leviticus 15, she was declared to be unclean, and that meant that anything or anyone that touched her or she touched would become unclean. And that meant, basically, she was ostracised from her community. She was not allowed to go near people and, 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 and relate to them. Uh, she uh, was not allowed into the temple to meet with God. She was not allowed to go to a synagogue. So she was an outcast in her own community. And she had been like this for 12 years which, remember, is the same age as Jairus' daughter. So for what was for Jairus' daughter a lifetime ends up being a lifetime of misery for this woman. A lifetime of humiliation, pain, rejection and despair. And all her efforts to get help have failed so far because Luke tells us she'd wasted all her living on this person, on, on trying to get treatment on doctors. She's at breaking point. She's got nothing left to give, nowhere else to get hope. And the implication really in the story is that she's all alone. No one's going to bat for her. No one's going up and saying, please come and heal my mother, my wife, my aunt, my cousin, whatever. She's on her own. This sickness has basically ruined her life. In fact, you can see it's actually robbed her of her money, of her relationships, it's robbed her of her dignity. This would have been so humiliating for her or for these last 12 years. And it's robbed her of her identity, of being part of the people of God because she was excluded from everything that mattered. So she really was hopeless, helpless, poor and alone. And I don't think you can get much lower than that. So you really do go from the highs of Jairus to the very lows of the lows. And because of all this... It's no wonder she feels unworthy to come directly to Jesus himself and beg. 
She's not even at that level. And so she sneaks up to him from behind, hoping to get what she can from Jesus merely by touching his garment without bringing any attention to herself. And you can just imagine what would have happened if she did try to bring attention to herself. The, the crowd going nuts over this unclean woman in their presence and probably all the people that she would have been touching along the way in order to push through to get to Jesus. But she does manage to push her way through and she does manage to touch Jesus' garment and she's instantly healed, you think, mission accomplished, except Jesus notices. She wanted to go unnoticed, but Jesus notices something. And what we're told is that she literally just touched the edge of his garment, which could have been the tassel on the edge of his um, uh, on the edge of his robe. So hardly, I mean, I played a lot of tip footy, and um, let me tell you, one of the things that we often dispute is, I touched you, and I'm there going, no, you didn't. Yes, I did. I just touched the edge of your shirt. Well, I didn't feel it. He goes, yeah, but I touched you. Well, and then we go off to arbitration. Um, uh, you played. A touch footy, you kind of have those uh, similar in incidents and, and this is the kind of situation. We're told that the crowd is pressing, uh, actually uh, crushing Jesus with their presence. Everyone is bumping and pressing into Jesus at this point in verse 45 along the way. I mean, I've been in crowd situations where that kind of thing happens. I was with my sister after New Year's Eve. Everyone's trying to get into the the train station after New Year's Eve. And I remember mum telling me, if you ever, if you let go of your sister, I will really, anyway. So I was holding on to my sister really tightly and trying to get through to the train. And we gradually were getting separated because the crowd was pressing in so tight. And I tell you, there wasn't a part of my body I didn't feel someone touching as I was trying to get through the crowd. And here's Jesus in a similar situation. The crowd is crushing in on him. And he says, who touched me? And so you can understand Peter, who's a big fan of stating the bleeding obvious, um, when he says, what do you mean, Jesus? Everyone's touching you. And Jesus kind of gives... I'm always trying to imagine whether Jesus is looking at Peter going, duh, Peter. Like, uh, but he, he says to him at this point, uh, it's not the pressure of people that I feel, but the power from within me that went out. Um, that's what he's talking about. And so now this woman, notice, who wants to go unnoticed, it says there, she wants to remain anonymous, out of the public eye, suddenly finds that she has to come right into the very presence of Jesus, into the very public eye, and get the attention that she had been dreading all along. And she confesses everything that happened. But it really is a beautiful picture that we have here, because I want you to notice what where she is now. She is... Well, I mean, she is trembling with fear at the feet of Jesus, but it's a beautiful place to be nonetheless in verse 47 because she's exactly in the same place that Jairus was before in the story. She's in the same position. And I want to say to you, it's just like death. Death is the great lever of humanity. No matter where you're coming from in the spectrum, you'll all end up in the same place. And it's so it is with Jesus. No matter where you are in the spectrum, high or low, rich, poor, great or small, come face to face with Jesus and you will be put in the same position with everyone else. All are equal before Jesus. 
You know, this woman is trembling with Jesus, trembling before Jesus. But Jesus, in verse 48, reassures her and encourages her. A beautiful word. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And what we discover here is that despite her timidity to approach Jesus, what she did have was faith. She did believe that Jesus could heal her. And in Jesus, what she discovered was, although her sickness had robbed her of her relationships, her dignity, her life, her identity and part of the people of God, Jesus now restores that to her. Because did you notice what he calls her? A daughter. In fact, I went searching in, in the Bible. I can't think of another place. I couldn't find another place where Jesus calls another woman daughter. Not even a bit later on when it's perfectly appropriate to talk about a little girl as daughter. But this is the only place where Jesus refers to someone as daughter. And I think he says this to her in particular to let her know that she is part of the people of God. She is a child of God. Jesus doesn't just give her her life back. He gives her eternal life as well. So we've seen the power of Jesus over sickness that robs life. Next we move to the power of Jesus over death itself. The woman in the story, though, I want to say to you, is not an interruption to the story of Jairus' daughter, but an important part of it. Because in... um, uh, Luke 40, uh, 8.49, it says, while he was still speaking to, to the woman, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher anymore. That is, it's at the same point that Jairus witnesses Jesus heal this woman that he's in force died. And immediately you think, was Jesus too late? Did the healing of the woman eat up the time. The man from the ruler's house seems to think, well, don't bother the teacher anymore. She's dead. It's beyond Jesus' ability now, apparently. So Jesus, we're told, addresses the situation directly and turns to Jairus and says, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. Now, this is straight after commending the woman her faith. Did you notice what he said to her? Your faith has made you well. Exactly the same words are now turned back to Jairus. And he's really saying to Jairus, trust me, believe me, that I can do it. The healing of the, the woman wasn't really an unfortunate delay, but a God-given encouragement for Jairus to believe that Jesus could do something even in this situation of death. And despite the laughter of the friends, Jairus keeps going with Jesus, he he commits himself to it. He allows Jesus to go in, to kick everybody else out and to go in and uh, greet the friends. Now just before I go on... uh, Friends, if you're still investigating the claims of Jesus, let me just warn you, this is a part and parcel of uh, often becoming a Christian. You will face the laughter and the ridicule of your friends and family because of your decision to stick with Jesus, sometimes in what seems to the world ridiculous situations. Christians will often go through it. But you can understand the crowd. 
from their point of view, dead people don't rise. In our experience, death is final. But Jairus, nevertheless, clings to Jesus for hope. And Jesus goes to the girl, and in the original, it's just two words. Verse 54, child, arise. And the girl does. She obeys the voice of Jesus. And it is amazing. This is outside of our experience. This is not the kind of thing that happens every day uh, for anybody. But what we see is that Jesus has that power even over death itself. And in fact, Jesus is pointing us to something really important, I think, when he says in verse 52, um, she's not dead but asleep. Um, Because he's picking up on Old Testament language and, in fact, a common biblical way of speaking about death, not as a time of finality, but as a sleep, a physical sleep that we all have to go through. Because in Daniel chapter 12, where, where he mentions those who are dead as those who are asleep, that they will one day arise at the general resurrection at the last day and from there everyone will have to face the judgment of God. And some will go and receive the great bliss of heaven and others will receive eternal damnation in hell. That's what Jesus is referring to. And this incident is reminding us that there is something that's greater that's taking place. Jesus is not just offering salvation from physical death, but more importantly, from spiritual death, from the judgment to come. He is offering us eternal life. And really, that is the the point of both of these episodes, to point to that fact. Uh, In verse 48 and verse 50, we have a bit of an unfortunate translation problem because in the original language, the word for healing is exactly the same word as the word for save. In fact, in verse 48, we can read, daughter, your faith has saved you. It's the typical word that Christians would use of salvation. And in verse 50, do not fear, only believe, and she will be saved. He's deliberately using uh, this word because he has a greater agenda than what these two miracles are about. They're pointing to something far more important, which is often the case with Jesus' miracles. They're signs. They point to something. Um, He wants us to see that Jesus has the power to save us from death, from hell forever. If we link it back to what we spoke about last week, that he really is the doctor for the soul, to give it health and life forevermore. Um, Verse 31 of uh, Luke chapter 5 from last week, those who are well have no need of a physician or a doctor, but those who are sick, Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jairus's daughter being raised from the dead really does point us to the end of the story because Jesus is going somewhere in the story. He's going to Jerusalem where we discover he's going to die on the cross. Why? To bring in that forgiveness so that we won't have to face the judgment of hell on the last day because of all the things that we have done wrong. Jesus cops that punishment in himself as he dies on the cross. And then we're told he was asleep for three days. I mean... He was physically dead, but he was asleep because three days later he rose again from the dead to show that he not only has the power of death over death to defeat death for himself, but also to defeat death for all those who put their trust in him. Now, 
I'd love to talk more about that. Really vitally important topic, but we're going to cover it at Ancon, and so I consider this a fairly shameless plug for Ancon. Make sure you get to Ancon this year. But let me give you some quick conclusions about these two stories. Firstly, we see the failure of religion. And by religion, I mean firstly our efforts to do uh, what we can to get right with God. Because for both Jairus and uh, this woman, what God required of them was clearly spelt out in the law. But the law failed both of them in this situation. It failed to provide any salvation for them out of their predicament, either one of them. For the woman, the law made it even worse. The implications of her condition made her life even more unbearable, if that could be possible, but it was. And that's precisely what it does for us as well. Because the the Bible wants to, to, to make it very clear to us that the law, when it examines us, finds us wanting. And our condition before God is pitiful. None of us are good enough for God, and no matter how great an effort we make, we can't do enough to rectify the situation. We're in the same desperate position that Jairus and the woman uh, were. Just like in physical death, in other words, so it is with spiritual death, we are unable to save ourselves. And even uh, for Jairus, the synagogue ruler, a big man of religion, in the face of his dying girl, it was powerless to help him at all. Religion in the Bible is often powerless and fails. But where it fails and where it lacks power, Jesus clearly has power and succeeds. Now, some of us do take comfort in our religion. Uh, we've done the right things. We can tick various... I've been baptised, I go to church, I say my prayers, I read my Bible, whatever it is, I fast, whatever it is that you can tick that is religious duty before God... Does it save you? Does it save you? And the Bible would tell you, no, it doesn't. No matter how much you think you may have done, it's not enough. Come face to face with God on Judgment Day and our efforts will be shown to be lacking. Secondly, we see the failure of medicine. The doctors couldn't help either of them. That's pretty obvious. Now, I know that medicine has uh, progressed a lot in the 2,000 years since the time of Jesus, and I personally had doctors do amazing things for me, and I really benefited from them, and I think they're wonderful. And I've seen them do amazing things for some of my friends, uh, and I've seen videos of them do amazing things for even, like, severed limbs. It's just incredible, the kinds of things that doctors are able to do these days. But they do have their limitations, don't they? I'd been able to do nothing for my son with autism. Uh, They couldn't help my dad uh, earlier this year from dying. And they have run out of things and options for my sister at the moment, who's dying of cancer. So they have their limitations well and truly. And we've exhausted all avenues in that pursuit. But with a touch of Jesus' garment, And two words that came out of his mouth. Jesus was able to do 
the unthinkable in our eyes to save from death. The best that doctors can do anyway is merely to postpone your death a bit longer. Might be able to cure you of cancer only for you to die of something else. Yeah? Isn't that right? It takes a different power altogether to save from death forever so that you die no more, to raise the dead. And the Bible wants you to know that Jesus has that power. He demonstrated it. You can believe it. And this is the point, really. This is the one point that I want you to take away from this. Death will hit you. It hits all of us. But Jesus has the power to save you from death. You can benefit from Jesus. We all can benefit from Jesus. Because the wonderful news of the Bible is that Jesus uses his infinite power for our good to save us from death, to save us from the coming judgment. And he's promising to use all his power to make for us a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth, where there will be no more pain or suffering or death or evil. And he promises us a position in that wonderful new creation if we trust him. Not because we deserve it, but because he's good and he's able to do it for us and he wants to give it to us. If it wasn't for their great need, you know, then it's not likely that Jairus and this woman uh, would have come to Jesus. And whether you realise it or not, our greatest need is to be saved from sin and to be saved from death and from beyond death, from, from God's judgment. And only Jesus has that power to save you. The fact of death in our world ought to remind us that we need saving. That's why I think it's better to go to a house of mourning, a funeral, than to go to a par party. Because it reminds us there is more to life than death, that we need saving, and that Jesus is the saviour that every single one of us needs. And what we see again and again in the Bible is that those who benefit from Jesus are not the religious or those who've been well regarded by others or those who've got it all together or those who've done so much good. Those who benefit from Jesus are those who firstly have a desperate need. <laughs> Secondly, who, who are able to humble themselves before Jesus and ask him to meet their need. And thirdly, those who believe that Jesus is able and will something about it. And that's really all you need to become a Christian. And I want to say, I, I think that's probably the case for most of us here. That's probably how we came to become Christians. You know, I, I mean, I wish I could sit down and tell you that the reason I became a Christian was because I listened to the intellectually robust arguments about Christianity and until it was intellectually, factually sorted out in my head, that's the reason that I believed. I mean, it is. Don't let, get me wrong. It is intellectually robust, and that's a wonderful thing, and I've come to discover that, but that's not why I became a Christian. I wish it was because I fell in love with Jesus. Uh, that's why I became a Christian. But it wasn't. It was because I recognised that I was going to die. And I came to a point where I realised that there was a God, and I thought, there's no way... I'm going to ever get 
to heaven on my own because I knew all the things that I had done at that point growing up in Blacktown. I had no qualms about calling myself a sinner and I knew that I was desperate. So the reason that I became a Christian was because I didn't want to go to hell and I knew that Jesus could do something about it. And that's why I became a Christian and then over time I came to realise that it does have an intellectually robust framework and Jesus is really wonderful and I have fallen in love with him. But friends, whatever your reason might be, I hope and pray that you become a Christian because you do have a need, whether you realise it or acknowledge it or not. And Jesus can meet that need for you. He can save you. Why not talk to your friend about it a bit more? Or if you want to find out a bit more about it, then tick that box on your feedback slips and and someone will get in contact with you. Or come and talk to me or talk to anyone uh, around you. But please, please consider Jesus. Thank you. That brings us to the end of today's public meeting. Um, like I said before, we're going to be having some afternoon tea uh, just down the stairs. Uh, next week we'll be continuing uh, in our series on John and Rowan will be uh, continuing to talk about that. So I really hope to see you there. Um, but as we finish, how about I close in prayer? Prayer is something that Christians do um, to come before God, to respond to um, the things that uh, we've heard today um, and to talk to him, which is really exciting and cool. So if um, that's something you want to do, please bow your head with me. Father, we thank you that in this world of brokenness, you give us light and you give us hope. Father, we thank you that no matter who we are, whether we are the best, the good, the most wise, um, or the lowest in society, that we can come before you um, and know that we have forgiveness in you and know that um, all the problems in our lives um, are temporary and that if we um, choose to accept your gift of grace and of love, that um, we can come to a place, Lord, of perfect relationship with you um, and where all that pain will be taken away. Uh, Lord, I just pray that um, as we reflect on what we've heard today about the inherent brokenness of this world and how helpless we are to fix that, Lord, may we um, think about the promises that you give us and think about um, how wonderful it is that we can come before you knowing that um, you love us dearly as your children um, and, yeah, that you uh, promise that you can fix that brokenness. Um, Lord, may that be something that doesn't just penetrate our minds and something that, um, yeah, we think about intellectually, um, but, Lord, may it be something that changes our hearts as we think about um, life and death and whether this is really all there is um, to it or whether there is, um, as you say, um, a life after death. Um, and, Lord, I pray that this is something that we would, um, yeah, be eager to share with our friends and not something that we just um, hold close to ourselves, Lord, but something that we would want to proclaim um, to uh, the University of Sydney campus. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Hope to see you guys next week.